0: And as you find your way back, I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open up to Galatians, where we'll find ourselves again. And also, you'll find it helpful to get that sermon study sheet out of your bulletin as well, as I'll be referencing that this morning. For the service here this morning, I was talking to one of our young guys out in the lobby area, kind of jokingly asking him if he was going to be drinking any coffee today. And he said, no, that would stunt my growth. And I said, well, I drink coffee as a little boy. It didn't do anything bad to me. Um, Maybe I would have been seven feet tall or something. (laughs) But the reason I say that is... um you know, uh, I started telling him. Actually, that whole idea of coffee stunting your growth came from false advertising back in the day. Uh, Postum Company had known that many kids were drinking coffee in the morning. They wanted them to drink their beverage, um, and so they started an advertising campaign that said doctors had proven that coffee stunts your growth. This was actually one of the things that uh, caused false advertising laws to be made because they started this thing that today we still believe. You know, that's one of the things I kind of was thinking about in the sermon is sometimes we can believe something and actually hold to it with great conviction And it can still be wrong. Now, in the case of drinking coffee or not drinking coffee, uh, nothing bad happens other than this young gentleman is missing out on this wonderful beverage that God created for us. (laughs) Um, But other times, uh, it can have more devastating impact. Uh, I was reading the story in Uganda in the 1980s. There was this kind of religious political, military leader, she was a cult leader named Alice Laquina, and that wasn't her real last name, but she took that name on because this was the name of the spirit that would um, possess her, and Laquina was supposedly some military general who died, and, and now he was possessing Alice, and and she led this group called the Holy Spirit Movement. Don't be misled by the name. It wasn't a Christian group. It was a cult, and they, they were um, uh, kind of frustrated with the Uganda. They wanted to take over politically, and so they were doing these military campaigns, and, and she had some success, so she had kind of a following of people who believed that this person is you know the spirit medium and has magic powers and all this stuff well in thousand nine hundred and eighty seven they decided to uh, go and storm this rural army outpost in Uganda and this uh, airstrip and it was guarded and The guards thought this was really strange because rather than the typical guys who had come dressed in you know military gear a bunch of half-naked men showed up trying to take over the place. Their pants were rolled up. They had no shirts on. They were covered in oil. And they're thinking, what's this? Hmm. Well, what had happened is Alice had convinced them that she had magic oil. And if they put this oil on their bodies, the the bullets would just bounce off of them. Uh, They could throw rocks, and the rocks would basically be like grenades. And, well, let's just say the oil did not work. Uh, devastating consequences for these rebels, misled by by wrong belief. Um, you know, the, the fact is, we can be very sincere about something and also be very wrong. And when it comes to religion, certainly there is a um, a subjective element to religion, and subjectivity is not a bad thing. When we think about our own religious experience, our testimonies have subjective elements to it. Uh, The peace we find in in community, the, the, the peace that we find in the gospel, the strength that we receive from God, these can be very powerful elements. And yet, if all we rely on is subjective experiences, then it's not a very good thing. Because what do you do when two people's subjective experiences contradict one another? And in a way, this is kind of what's happening in Galatians. Paul has been speaking a message, and this group comes along saying something different And at the end of the day, you can't solve this by just saying, well, I feel this way, you feel that way. No, you need some truth. And what we find here is Paul is going to be making an argument today, but it's based on objectivity. Uh, At the the foundation of religion, we need something objective. We need objective truth, not just subjective feelings. and so as we, as we come to our text today, one of the things that we're looking at here is, okay, so how do we, how do we know that we're not just sincere about something, but in the end, wrong about it? Because this is not something we can be afford to be wrong about. So we come to our text today, and this is so important in our culture today, we are so prone to subjective arguments, and you know, everybody just says your truth is your own, we're a very subjective culture. And that the call for objective truth is, is stronger than ever. So with that said, before we jump into our passage today, let's go ahead and pray and ask God for his help. And we'll go ahead and take a look at this, this portion of Galatians this morning. Pray with me. God, we thank you that we can gather here once again this morning uh, to open your word. This is such an incredible privilege to us, God. I hope that we don't miss it. Help us to see how good it is. My mind goes back to Venture Clubs this week, talking with with my group of kids and, and talking about how we could look at the world and see that there must be a creator, but if that's all we had, we wouldn't know much about you. We wouldn't know who you are, what you're like, how to have a relationship with you, how to please you. And God, in your kindness, you gave us your word so that we would know you. God, certainly you are, you are infinite and we can't comprehend you fully, but what we have is truth and we can comprehend you rightly. And so God, as we open your word today, we put aside our what we think is right, we put aside what we imagine you to be like, and we come to your word and we ask you to show us what you are like. We ask you to show us areas in our lives that need to be changed. God, we don't ask you to change to fit our needs but God we ask that we would change to fit you so God as I speak today I pray that you would give me the right words to say but also Lord I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and and the ability to hear and comprehend truth and apply it into our lives so I'd lift up this congregation in this this morning we need you and so God we pray this in the name of Jesus and in spirit amen Wonderful. Well, first, I'm going to refer to your study sheet because I want to catch our place. This is only our second week in Galatians, and some review of where we find ourselves, what Galatians is all about, would be really good for us. So, Galatians, likely one of Paul's earliest, likely is Paul's earliest letter, and it focuses on the heart of the gospel. It's addressing the issue of the gospel being uh, attacked and, as I said, undermined, adjusted oftentimes we see that these changes are subtle but they they are devastating in their consequences And i think it's good for us as we step in this morning to remind ourselves what is the gospel and that word gospel literally means good news and we talked about this last week that the gospel isn't just general good news for instance sometimes you might say what's the gospel and someone might respond well god loves you and that is good news but that's not the gospel the gospel is good news that's specific and unique to Christianity. And at the heart of it, the good news of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul, in fact, Paul in one of his other letters says if the resurrection didn't happen, then, then this whole thing is vanity. It's all vain. It doesn't mean anything. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Because it verified everything that Jesus said about himself. He's He is the Son of God that He came to, to live the life that we couldn't, to die for our sins. That on the cross as He died for our sins, the resurrection proved that what He did was acceptable to the Father. That on the cross through His resurrection, He conquered sin, death, and Satan. The message of the gospel is that if we put our trust in what Jesus did, that is how we're made right with God. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about that whole Christian message of how do you get made right with God? Well, it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, the problem in Galatia, the problem with the Galatian church is they were getting this new form of the gospel, which wasn't the gospel at all. People were coming along saying, yeah, you get made right with God, you become acceptable uh, to God through Jesus, but to really be acceptable you also have to become jewish in your culture in your traditions you need to take on all these jewish practices they were adding to the gospel it was basically the gospel it had, that they were preaching was jesus and a little human effort and Paul comes along to correct this. Now last week in his correction, the introduction we saw that uh, his opening argument that is that the gospel Paul was preaching was actually God's gospel. It wasn't something Paul made up. The gospel came from God, it carried God's authority, and it was all about God's work. And what we're going to find today as we step into our passage is now Paul is going to um, give evidence for these assertions. He's going to give evidence that uh, the gospel is from God. In fact, on your study, I say he's going to give evidence for the assertion both that the gospel is from God and also that his apostolic authority is from God. Last week, we talked about the difference between the big A apostle and little A apostle. And if that's a, a foreign concept to you, listen to last week's message. But Paul's saying, I have apostolic authority. I have authority from God to establish what the gospel is. And so Paul here is going to make an objective truth claim as he's defending the gospel. In addition to seeing this objective claim, we're also going to discover something amazing and unique about the gospel. But let's go ahead and look at our passage today Um, in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 11 through 24. You can follow along with me. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So in this section, Paul turns to this biographical um, argument of his own life, and he's using his life as evidence for uh, what he's saying, that he has authority to establish the gospel, and the gospel didn't come from him, but it came from, from God. Now, several things here that I want us to see about Paul, about what he's saying here, and it requires us to kind of understand a little bit about who Paul was before his conversion, Paul mentions in verse 14 that he is advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age, and he was zealous, zealous. What did this look like? He gives us a little bit of insight into this in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul's here saying, you know what, I I was like, if you want to talk about being Jewish and following the law, I I was the guy born to the right family. I was part of the right group. I was zealous to the point that I persecuted the church. And what we need to understand here, why why did Paul's zealousness lead him to persecute the church? Well, unlike today, when we think about the religious sphere, sometimes we put that as just one aspect of our life. Like, you know, I can be American and I can be Christian, but I can also be American and I could be some other religion as well, right? So we have this idea that religion is kind of the separate sphere. In Paul's day, to be Jewish wasn't just like a religious identity. It was also a cultural identity. It was a whole identity. It was the, Everything was Jewish. God's, God's people were Jewish. Therefore, to be one of God's people meant to be Jewish. And because there wasn't this distinction between kind of the religious sphere and everything else, then in order to protect The religious sphere also meant you are protecting the national sphere. To protect the national sphere meant you are protecting the religious sphere. So in Paul's mind, he knew this. If the religion gets corrupted, guess what happens to the national strength? It goes down. This is Israel's history. Every time they strayed from God, guess what happened? Politically, they went downhill. Why did they end up in exile? Because they strayed from God. Why do they now have Roman control over them in Paul's day? Because they would strayed from God. So to protect the religion was to protect the nation. And likewise, to protect the nation was to protect the religion. There's a long line of people who were zealous for Israel and acted with, with their zealousness to protect things. And they were his, heroes. And, and Paul saw himself in this light. Paul loved God. He loved the nation of Israel. And he wanted to protect it. Sometimes when we think of Paul persecuting the church, we might think of him as a villain at this point, an angry man. I don't think he was an angry man. One writer, Tom Schreiner, he's a noted scholar, says this, Doubtless, Paul, before his conversion, conceived of himself as part of a venerable Jewish tradition that stood for the observance of the law. For instance, Phineas, by slaying the Israelite man and Midianite woman engaging in sexual relations, displayed his zeal for the Lord, Numbers 25.11. So too Elijah demonstrated zeal for the Lord in slaying the prophets of Baal, First Kings 19.10-14. Matthias also uh, manifested the same zeal when Antiochus Epiphanes tried to re- repress the Jewish religion. Matthias slew the Jew who was about to offer an illegitimate sacrifice among the king's, along with the king's officer and then proceeded to tear down the altar. These were all people who were protecting God's people from pagan influences. And what Paul saw himself doing was this, this Christian sect coming in here, these Jesus followers, was just pagan influence and we need to protect not only the religious sphere but the national sphere from them. So what would change a man like this? What would cause a Pharisee, a zealous Pharisee, who loves his country, to change so radically? Well, this week in our community groups, you were asked to read Acts 9. I want to read a portion of that. This is what happens. It says, but Saul, Saul and Paul, the same person. Saul is just his Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek form of that name. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that would be Christians, they were called the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Right at that point was when Paul changed. He encountered the living Jesus and it changed everything for him. This this zealous Pharisee is going to be radically different from this point on. So Paul's referring back to his testimony, back to his life Uh, and and he's making the argument, this is why I have authority. This is why the gospel's not from someone else. This is straight from God. And here's some of the things that we're seeing from his argument. First of all, Paul's revelation from Christ was a literal event. See, sometimes we might talk about finding Jesus today in more of a, a metaphorical sense, right? Uh, i i was living my life this way then i found jesus or you know i was just in the throes of depression i heard jesus say to me you know don't give up and you know we don't mean literally like jesus appeared before us and talked to us we're speaking more metaphorically that's not what paul's doing here when paul says i i was given this by jesus he's talking literally the resurrected Jesus literally showed up to Paul. And I don't believe that this on the road to Damascus was only time that Jesus had interaction with Paul. So he's pointing to this, not not a subjective feeling, an objective fact. Jesus literally showed up to me and called me into this ministry. Second, what kind of ministry was he called into? Well, Paul was chosen by God specifically for the Gentiles, And it wasn't just Paul saying this. Others, I give you several verse references, others confirm this because through the Holy Spirit, other people said, oh, Paul's been called to the Gentiles. I would say this gave him unique authority regarding the Gentiles. What does it look like to follow Jesus if you're a Gentile? You know, we should probably ask the guy that God sent to the Gentiles rather than these people coming in preaching a different gospel. What, what we're seeing here isn't just two people who happen to show up and be like, yeah, this is my opinion, that's my opinion. One of them was actually sent by God. The others weren't. Next, I, I think it's so interesting here that for someone like Paul, not requiring the adoption of Jewish culture and customs had to have a good reason. Remember I said Paul was a zealous Pharisee? Remember, he didn't have anything he disliked about the Jewish culture. Paul didn't hate the law. In fact, the Pharisees themselves were actively going out to the Gentiles to convert them. So going to the Gentiles wasn't a foreign concept for Paul. The Jewish people were establishing synagogues all over the known world. This is why when Paul goes on his missionary journeys, there's always a synagogue everywhere he goes. The Jewish people had already been there. The Pharisees had already sent people there. But you see, in their means of conversion, again, there's no separation between religious sphere and national sphere, so to get someone to become one of God's people meant you're also becoming Jewish. You need to take on a Jewish identity. You need to take on Jewish culture. You need to become Jewish to be one of God's people. So this would have been Paul's natural idea of what it meant to convert. As he's going to a Gentile. So, so the very fact that he doesn't require a conversion to Judaism means something significant must be at play here. Because just by his natural tendency, just, if it was just a neutral thing, I think Paul would have been like, yeah, it's great to take on Jewish traditions and celebrate Jewish holidays and, and do these customs. But something is going on here uh, that would cause this, this zealous Pharisee to not only not require Jewish traditions, but in and of himself, in verse 12, he talks about my former life in Judaism. It actually caused him to step away from it. There's something going on here. Another thing that we see here as we look at Paul's testimony is that Paul did not receive the gospel from other men. This is a big part of his argument. As he is talking about this, we can kind of deduce what his opponents are saying. They're probably saying, you know what? Paul just learned this gospel from the apostles just like we did, and he must have just misunderstood it. His interpretation of the apostles' teaching is wrong. Therefore, eh, let us tell you about how this all works with the law. Let us show you the law. This is the right way to follow Jesus. And Paul makes a big point. Actually, I didn't receive this from anybody he says, for, for three years I was, I was gone. And then the only interaction I had with Cephas or Peter was for 15 days. If you think I was his disciple, that's not a discipleship relationship. Uh, discipleship is like following somebody for an extended period of time. So Paul's establishing this. And he has, you know, people can back him up on this. But I find it very interesting. I'm, on the blanks there, the fill-in for that is flesh and blood. Because in verse 16 here, if you look at verse 16, the way that Paul ends verse 16 is he said, I did not immediately consult with anyone. But the literal translation for that, the words that he uses in Greek is, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. This caused me to wonder, is there a tie here? Listen to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is talking to Peter. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. As Paul's saying, I didn't consult with flesh and blood. What's he saying here? He's saying, I've received this from God directly. Not, not from man. This wasn't flesh and blood from another person. This wasn't my own flesh and blood realizing that this was the truth. No, I received this gospel directly from God. And, and in fact, I think he's putting himself here on equal footing with Peter, independent of the apostles, but on the same level as the apostles in Jerusalem. So Paul here has authority to do this. As we look at Paul's testimony then, at the end, we see that the community recognized Paul's conversion as a work of God. So this isn't just Paul saying, this only happened because of God. But all the people in the churches around saw our our persecutor, the guy who's the biggest opponent, the biggest antagonist towards Christianity, is now one of us. Only God could have done this. And so Paul looks at the community and says, everybody knows this, that my being here was only because of what God did. It was a work of God. Final verse there, they they glorified God because of me. So what we have here is the gospel Paul preached wasn't an interpretation of something he would taught. It wasn't an opinion of how to interpret someone else's teaching. Paul is not saying, you know, I heard this, and this is the right way to do what, you know, Peter and John and James are teaching. Paul's saying, no, I received this from God, and this is, this is, I have the authority to say, this is the gospel. And what you guys are saying is not the gospel. Now, as we continue along, I want us to just see a few things about how unique the gospel is, just that we start gathering from here, because I think this is, this is really interesting as we consider Paul, especially this struck me. I don't know if any of you have uh, grew up watching Sesame Street. I did. Um, And one of the things I still remember from watching Sesame Street as a kid was they had this little song on there that one of these things is not like the other. Any of you remember that? It was like the main thing that, Tim's really excited now. (laughs) Uh, And you, you saw, you'd see like, three red balloons and one blue balloon they'd sing the song and can you figure out which one's not like the other by the end of the song and you know then they'd reveal which one it is well it's interesting that as paul is arguing that this gospel comes from god the implication here is christianity is not a man-made religion this is from god and therefore that if this is from god and the exclusive claims of christianity are true then that means every other religion is man-made you know what that should mean That when we look at the religions across the board, one of these things is not like the other. Which one is it? And I I think, you know, yeah, this is going to be a very brief treatment, but when we look at the gospel, when we look at Christianity, there's several elements of it that are not like other religions, that stand alone, that cause it to be unique. One of them is this, that the gospel does not have a singular human founder. You know, typically when we look at religions, it's some guy who ends up in a cave somewhere, receives some divine revelation, and comes down and says, God spoke to me, and here is the new scriptures. But this wasn't the case with with the gospel. With the gospel, what do we have? We have these disciples of Jesus who followed him, not just one disciple, but multiple disciples who followed Jesus. They see the resurrected Jesus. They're giving authority to establish religion. They, they write the Gospels. So you have multiple Gospels now all saying the same thing. Multiple people all saying the same thing. And, and there's people out there that say, you know what? But they were all conspiring together. Okay, so you have one group of people. Multiple people, by the way, but one group. Supposedly they're all conspiring, right? Well, along comes this guy, Paul, who's persecuting them, who doesn't think what they're doing is right, who's attacking them, and all of a sudden, the resurrected Jesus shows up to him too and gives him the gospel. He didn't get the gospel from these guys. He got the gospel from Jesus. What other religion out there has multiple people receiving the same message? Well, sometimes you might have that, but what do they do? They end up fighting each other for control, right? But here we have the gospel given to multiple sources, and rather than fighting, they they have unity, they, they affirm one another, and they say, yeah, that guy's an apostle. Yeah, that guy's an apostle. That guy's writing scripture. That guy's writing scripture. This is really unique. This is not like the others. So the gospel does not have a single, singular human founder, nor does it rely on a strong centralized control. Paul received it independently, yet remained in agreement with the other apostles. See, when Paul was going down the Damascus road, it wasn't that someone came along and and gave him an argument that somehow convinced him. It was only by an act of God. Another item where the gospel is unique is the gospel is not tied to any one culture or language. This is one that we won't really get to develop much here, but this is one of the reasons why Paul isn't making the Gentile Christians take on Jewish culture. Why not? Well, the gospel is really interesting in this. I give you a quote from this author here uh, from a book called Whose Religion is Christianity Anyway? Just looking at the church globally, and this person says, Christianity seems unique in being the only religion that's transmitted without the language or originating culture of its founder. Why is this so important? Because it means there's not one culture that is superior to the others when it comes to following Jesus. What what does that quote mean? Well, what language did Jesus speak? Aramaic, some Hebrew. What language are the Gospels given to us in? They're given to us in Greek. Think about this. Go to the day of Pentecost. The first time that the Gospel is preached, what language is the Gospel preached in? All of the languages. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't let any one language, any one culture become the superior one. You know, I have the privilege of having several Muslim friends, and what's interesting is because Muhammad spoke Arabic and wrote in Arabic, and the Quran's in Arabic, their view is very different than ours. I can look at this English translation of the Bible and say, this is the word of God. But for them to hold a Quran, it has to be in Arabic. That's the only language the Quran can be in. The translation of the Quran is at best a commentary on it. But this is the word of God. This, the Bible, the scriptures, and your language is all you need to follow God. There isn't any one other language that's superior. I go to Indonesia. They don't speak Arabic, and yet their services are all in Arabic. I say, what's your favorite passage of the Quran? It's this one. Why? Well, it just sounds nice to me. They don't know what it says. They just assume the power is in the words themselves, not in the meaning. So the gospel is is unique in this. The gospel is unique, third one, in that it's not reliant on a good argument, a favorable reception or a position of human strength. Some religions grow because they make a good argument. People look at it and say, "I, I like that one. Other religions grow because they have military strength behind them or political strength behind them. This is never the case with Christianity. Christianity has always grown best when politically it's been in a position of weakness. I mean, look at Paul's life. How did this guy come to saving faith? Was it through a good argument? No. Even his life is testimony of this reality. And we might look at the gospel today and say, man, it, it really doesn't mesh well with our culture. It's really at odds with our culture. And we might think that is an aspect of it being so far removed. This was something that was taught 2,000 years ago and it, it doesn't quite mesh with our culture. Guess what? It didn't mesh with Paul's culture either. I give you the reference of 1 Corinthians 1 20 through 25 where Paul's saying, you know what? This this whole thing is at odds with culture. Uh, this whole thing is offensive to the Jewish person. This whole thing is foolishness to the Greek person. Uh, for the Jewish people to think of a Messiah dying in such a shameful way on a cross, offensive. The Greek person who valued wisdom saying, you're telling me a God came down and died? What? This didn't mesh with the culture of the day, and yet what happened? Jews and Greeks in large numbers came to Christ. Why? It didn't depend on a good argument. It didn't depend on it being unoffensive to a culture. It didn't depend on someone with a gun saying, believe this or else. In fact, the the church has often been the weakest when there is political strength behind it. And today, the same things are said. I've talked to atheists. One of the things I've heard, one of the accusations against the gospel I've heard, is that the gospel is just divine child abuse. How can you guys say that God is a loving father when he would send his only son to die? That's stupid. Or, in the case of my Muslim friends, they would say, because they believe that Jesus was a good prophet, and it's offensive to say, you're saying a good prophet died on a cross? No, he didn't. You know what happened? God switched him and Judas at the last minute. And yet, Even though the atheists have their arguments against the gospel, even though the Muslims have their arguments against the gospel, what's happening in the world today? The largest atheist country in the world, China, which has an overtly atheist government, which has overtly atheist education in their schools, that teach their students all the ways you can disprove the, the reality of God. And yet, China has one of the biggest churches in the world, fastest growing by number. Look at the, the Muslim world in Iran, one of the top 10 Muslim countries in terms of size and probably the one that is the harshest in terms of persecuting Christians, right now has the fastest growing church by, by rate of growth. In fact, there was a news story just the other day, I think it was on Fox News, just uh, talking about a documentary that was just made that is talking about the growth of the church in Iran All underground, all oppressed, and yet not affecting it one bit. It's amazing. Why is this? Because the gospel's not reliant on a good argument. There's something else behind it. One of these things is not like the other. So I titled the message today that the gospel is from God and that the gospel is for God. And you might have, if you looked at that title, you might have said, What do you mean the gospel's for God? Isn't the gospel for us? Isn't it good news for us? Isn't it about our salvation? And the answer is yes, but ultimately the gospel is for God. And what I mean by that is the gospel is for God in the sense that the gospel is for God's glory. God receives glory in several ways as we consider our passage today. First of all, we see that God receives glory because the gospel is from God. When we look at the way that the gospel came about, it points to God. And consider all the things that I just mentioned in the previous section about the gospel being unique. You look at that, and if you you understand what's going on, you can't help but glorify God for it. It's amazing. You have to come to a place where you say, God, you're amazing. It glorifies God. The gospel glorifies God because it's about God. The gospel says it's all God's work. Everything about it is something God accomplished. And therefore, at the end of the day, God gets the glory for it. So what Paul meant in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, when he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That was the whole issue facing the Galatians, as they were kind of falling to this message of, yeah, God does this, but you also need to put in some work. And Paul's saying, no, it's, it's all about God. It's, it, he did all the work. When God looks at you, you're not doing anything to please him. You're not doing anything to impress him. He's not saying, wow, look how good that person tried. When God looks at you, the good that he sees is what Christ accomplished. It's the righteousness of Christ that God sees. The beautiful thing about this is it means it doesn't matter what nation you're from, it doesn't mean what race you're from, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you're from, it doesn't matter what family you're from, it doesn't matter what past you're from, what your history is. Everybody's on equal footing when it comes to approaching God through Christ. Because it's all about what Christ accomplished. So God gets the glory. Third, God gets the glory because it requires God. The results of the gospel point to God. And you think about Paul. God not only chose his biggest opponent, this zealous Pharisee, the one who's persecuting the church, God, God changes him. But God doesn't just change him. He then sends the guy who's the zealous Pharisee to the Gentiles to preach a message of freedom to them that they don't have to become Jewish people. Of anybody, that'd be the last person you should send to the Gentiles to say you don't need to become Jewish. A zealous Pharisee? Are you kidding me? Take the guy who loves his nation and loves his culture and loves his traditions, and you're going to send him to those people he looks down on naturally, and he's going to say you don't have to become Jewish to know God, to follow Jesus. This is this is incredible. It could only happen because of God. The gospel requires God, and therefore it glorifies him. God gets glory when he takes those things that we look at and say, that that can't be. And he does it anyway to show, actually, I'm the sovereign ruler of the universe. I love there's a little passage in Acts 5 where the apostles early on are arrested. They're going to actually kill them. And this guy speaks up, and... Um, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, his name is Gamaliel, and he is Paul's teacher. He's actually the guy that Paul studied under as a Pharisee. And he talks them out of killing the apostles, not because he likes the apostles, but this is what he says. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan is uh, the undertaking of man, it will fail. He was pointing to all the other cases where some movement happened, some leader convinced people he was the Messiah, and as soon as the leader died, guess what? The group dispersed. So he's saying, if this is from man, it's going to fail. Then he says, but if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God if it's from God. And when we look at Christianity, as we look at the Gospels, we look at how the Gospel continues to grow even under oppression. You look at that and you say, this could only happen because it's of God. God gets the glory. So how is the gospel for God? It glorifies God. It glorifies God because it's from God. It's about God. It produces what only God could produce. So what do we do with this today? On the responding to God's word, I put two points under under the same heading of the gospel is for God's glory, therefore... And what are two things we need to take away from this? If the gospel is for God's glory, first of all, we need to be aware that straying from the gospel or changing the gospel message isn't just dangerous. It also steals glory from God. Last week, we looked at how if you modify the gospel at all, it becomes a different gospel. It becomes not a real gospel. So it's dangerous because it doesn't lead to salvation. But the other problem is it steals glory from God. There's several ways that we might be tempted to do this. One is when we feel like we need to shape the gospel to fit our culture. Say, man, this is kind of offensive, and it doesn't fit this culture. So I'm going to shape this. I'm going to change this a little bit so it, it works with our culture a little bit. And man, this is happening like wildfire today. Now I believe in communicating the gospel well, I believe in speaking with humility and speaking winsomely, but we do not need to make the gospel non-offensive. Because you see, God's glory is when something doesn't make sense to a culture, it's offensive and he still takes people out of it and brings them to saving faith. Because you know what? It's not revealed by flesh and blood, but by God. We might stray from the gospel as well when we try to work out our own salvation, when we're not depending on God to change us and we start feeling that need of, I need to fix myself up. I need to clean myself up. I'm living in a way that depends on me to impress God, to be acceptable to God. This too steals glory from God because we believe that we have something to do with it. So we need to be very careful in that sense. But here is perhaps the most dangerous one. We stray from the gospel when we fail to share it because we think that person could never come to faith. That person is too far gone. That person is too opposed. That person's already heard it all. And therefore, I'm I'm going to give up. I'm going to silence my tongue. And when we do that, we're rejecting part of the gospel that it relies on God, that it... it It's effective because God's behind it, not because we're so good at speaking or arguing our case. See, God will continue to glorify Himself because it's His work to do. Yeah, He calls us to speak it. We're the messengers, but we aren't the one who change people, are we? And so this is my second point then, uh, and a point that I want to leave us on, a point of hope, really. Because the gospel is for God's glory, therefore, we can expect the gospel to remain effective. Why? Because there's not one moment God is unworthy of glory. There's not one moment that God has stopped working for his glory. Why is the gospel just as effective today as it was 2,000 years ago? Why is the gospel still effective in whichever culture you go into, even when it is at complete odds with the culture? Because it's about God's glory, and he is always worthy of glory. Therefore, we can be confident that God will never stop working for his glory. Therefore, we can be confident that when God says, go and make disciples of all nations, that when we obey that and when we go, that there will be productive, there will be fruit from that. Because God's doing it for his glory, and he delights in in showing us how he is working in ways that only he can He delights in in showing us that, man, if this was up to me, this would have never happened. And so when we see that aspect of that the gospel is from God and that the gospel is for God, you know what this should do for us? We write it there, it should cause us to live with gospel-fueled confidence and hope see i can have all the right theological boxes checked and i can still live my life kind of fear-based like if if this political thing doesn't work out we're all doomed if i don't quite do this right this person will be lost forever you know and, and we live in fear and i think that kind of fear needs to be repented from the gospel calls us to have confidence and hope It's not fueled in our strength and our ability. It's fueled in the God, the sovereign God of the universe, who is at no time unworthy of glory. He's always worthy of glory, and therefore he's always going to be working for it. And therefore, church, what I want you to hear today, what I hope you take away here, is is confidence and hope that's fueled by the gospel. To not hold back telling people about the gospel To not fear rejection, sharing it. To not think someone in your life is too far from it. I know we all have somebody in our life that seems so far from God. But they aren't. So I want to pray for us today. I'd invite you to stand and I want to pray for us as we head out from here. And I want to ask God for his help in this because, again, it's God's work, right? It's not our work. So let's pray. God, this morning we do come before you as people. We sitting here, we know, we know our shortcomings, we know our inabilities, we don't need anyone to tell us of that. If we've tried to share our faith, we've known the times where we feel embarrassed. We know that feeling of saying, Ah, I don't think I'm ever going to break through to that person. But God, today we're reminded that this is your work that you delight in bringing the least likely to you. So God, this morning we need to have gospel-fueled hope and confidence. Not confidence born from our own strengths and not confidence that is erased by our weaknesses, but confidence that's based in you. God, you are the sovereign God of the universe. You are worthy of glory. You are worthy of worship. You desire worship And you will continue to work for your glory. So this morning, as we talk about these things, I I just lift us up to you, Lord, because we can't just drum up feelings of confidence. We can't just manufacture hope within ourselves. We can't speak it into existence. But God, this has to come from you, so I pray that you would give us that. I pray this for myself as much as anyone else in this room. God, we all need you. I need you. So God, this congregation, wherever they find themselves this week, I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would strengthen them, give them words to speak, actions to do, Lord. But Lord, help us to not be silent. Help us not to be silent. And so God, we pray this this morning in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.